My Sin, God's Mercy, and Everyday Life was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, November 12, 2023 at Sovereign Grace Church. Your Bibles to the book of Judges. If you are visiting with us, great Sunday. Um, we just started a series where we are preaching through the book of Judges. Um, 22 weeks, in fact, through the book of Judges. We are in week three. And this morning, we are looking at Judges 2, 6 through 3, 6. Uh, we'll take a little break with a guest speaker next week. And then Thanksgiving weekend, we will begin to get into the actual Judges themselves. But, but this morning, we're still, we're still laying groundwork, if you will. We're still laying groundwork to, to understand what Israel's condition was, what, what happened, why the judges will learn more about their purpose as we go beginning next week. But that's where we are still at. So if you will stand with me, we'd love to stand and read God's word around here just to set this part of our worship apart from the rest of it. Judges 2, verse 6, and you're going to notice we, we actually step back in time. Uh, as we begin our text this morning, the, the author, who's probably Samuel, he, he takes a look backward. Uh, verse 6, chapter 2, when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua was the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Hiris, in the, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And then there arose another, another generation after them who did not know the Lord. Or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord. The God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Bells and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. But the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back 
and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations. The five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon, on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebohamoth. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandment of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Maybe seated, please pray with me. Lord, thank you that you are in this place. You fill your people with your spirit. And you are here this morning in our hearts in a unique way. You are here to pour out your grace that you might be exalted in and through us. And in particular right now through the preaching of your word. Lord, my words mean nothing. Your words mean everything. And so fill me with your spirit now that I might rightly and faithfully, passionately and appropriately bring your word to bear. Bring your word as good news to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was probably 13 years ago, I had just became the, new, the senior pastor here at the church, and I was asked to go back to what was called a preaching practicum at the Sovereign Grace Pastors College. For those of you who are visiting, uh, we're part of a family of churches, Sovereign Grace Churches here in the United States, but also globally. And we have a pastor's college where we send men who believe and whose local church has affirmed that there, there seems to be a, a calling to the pastorate. They go back and they give a, a year of their life to studying full-time. And so Sovereign Grace was having this, this preaching practicum. So I went out to preach and participate. Um, it, it consisted of about 30 Sovereign Grace pastors uh, many of them seasoned preachers, some of them, like me, still learning to preach. Indeed, I'm still learning to preach. Um, but in particular, you know, it was intimidating. I, I mean, Jeff Perswell, who's the dean of Pastors College, he's sitting there in the back row right next to C.J. Mahaney, who is a brilliant, gifted teacher who used to lead Sovereign Grace. Now he is the senior pastor at our church in Louisville, Kentucky. But, but, but both of those men are... 
model preachers. And so you can imagine, I have to get up here and I have to preach knowing that I'm going, they're listening to me and I'm going to get critiqued. It was a little bit like if Tim, who's a financial guy, if he was asked to prepare, uh, you know, an investment plan for Warren Buffett, right? It's like, here you go. So I preached by the grace of God. I think I was faithful to the text, but but when I was done, it was opened up to the entire class for critique. Okay, here's what you did really well. Don't do this again. It's kind of the idea, right? And so Jeff Perswell, the dean of the pastor's college, gets up there and he says, yeah, faithful exegesis, clear preaching, good progression of thought. Boy, you got the gospel in there. Well, I was preaching Galatians 1.8. If you're familiar with that text, it is... If anyone brings to you another gospel, let them be anathema. Let them be accursed. But when Jeff got to the critique part, he said to me, he said, you can't preach this with a smile on your face. He said, this isn't funny. This is serious. There is no other book where you see, God, where you see the apostle Paul go off on the church like he does the church in Galatia. Why? Because they're distorting the gospel. <laughs> he says, you can, you can, we, we can't approach this as a preacher with a cavalier attitude. This is just another story. No, the gospel's at stake. Paul is angry. A holy anger is burning in him as he writes and as he begins this letter to the Galatians. This is one of those texts this morning. Today's passage is one of those moments. It's a no-holds-barred deep dive into the spiritual condition of Israel. And like I said earlier, we're not advancing the narrative this morning. Today, instead, our text parallels what we've already seen in the first uh, two sermons. And now we're focusing, if you will, the author is focusing on us on what is the five-alarm emergency of Israel's spiritual condition. This is a sad moment in the biblical narrative. There is no smiling when we come to this text. But, however, while while, while, while there isn't much here to smile at, I promise you, by the end of this sermon, we, we will find, if we look closely we will find something to smile about as we leave this place. This is a sobering text, but it is also a text that projects the greatest hope that anyone could ever have and know. So to that end, I have three points. Faith matters. Sin is serious. God is merciful. Faith matters. Your faith matters. Living out your faith matters. Our sin is serious. We have to take our sin serious. We have to take our idolatry serious. But what undergirds it all, what motivates both of those, is a God who is forever abundantly merciful. So our first point this morning is faith Matters. You'll notice as we read, the author begins 
by providing a bit of a contrast, if you will. He presents the details of Joshua's death and burial. And that might seem odd. Okay, well, we're, we're in, in Joshua. And one thing you're going to learn is Joshua is not always chronological. There are moments when we look back. There, there are some stories that some scholars even said that, that may have happened during Joshua's time, before when he was still alive. But, but they're essential. This look back to Joshua's death and burial It's not just some details. They are important as we move forward. In verse 7, you'll notice we learn how God's people thrived spiritually under Joshua's faithful, God-centered leadership. And then you'll notice in verse 9 that the author tells us, he tells us that Joshua was buried in his promised inheritance. So, So the author begins this section that is very dark. Very discouraging, very alarming. And he starts with Joshua. And the people, verse 7, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. And then in verse 9, after hearing he lived to be 110 years old, it says that they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance. That is his inheritance from the hand of the Lord. So what's the point in these opening verses? I think the point is this, that God rewards the faithful. Joshua was faithful. He was a brilliant leader, but in his brilliance, he was faithful to follow God as he led his people amid difficulty, amid crisis, amid a new day crossing over the Jordan. Go take the land that I promised you. Joshua was faithful to God personally and in his leadership, and God rewarded him. God rewarded him. He he was laid to rest in the land that God promised to him. Well done, good and faithful servant, Joshua. But it's a new era in Israel. Look at verse 10. This, this introduction begins, verse 10, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. But then it says this, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Think, just pause for a moment. Think about that. An entire generation did not know the Lord. Did not know what the Lord had done for them. It's important to know that by not knowing, that's the phrase the author uses, they, they did not know. He's not talking about an innocent ignorance. He's not talking about memory loss. These people, this generation, had been taught God's love consistently. They had been taught about God's holiness. They knew about Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments. They had been taught about God's faithfulness. They had been taught about Egypt 
and how at one time their ancestors were slavery, in slavery to Egypt. They were in bondage to slavery. But God delivered them. They had been taught about the Red Sea. They had been taught about crossing over to the Jordan as Joshua led the way, the, the nation's hero. They, they knew that stuff. They had been taught that stuff. It's not as if they were ignorant intellectually to that information. They just didn't care. That's what he means by not knowing. They did not know the Lord or what he had done. Listen, in the Old Testament, scribes were, uh, they, they were, they wrote down everything. This is why we can trust our Bible. They were, things were written down and they were written down more than once with precision. It's not that, it's not that they weren't taught these things. It's that they did not care about them. They had no regard for God. They weren't atheists. They were agnostics. They just were indifferent. God's character, God's provision, God's promises, it had no impact on them. It didn't influence them. It didn't matter to their lives. They knew about the Lord, but they didn't know the Lord. And we get to pause right up front here. And we're reminded of how important our faith is. Our faith matters. In your home, dads, your faith, your leadership, your example, bringing the gospel to bear to your children's lives. You can't save anyone. You know that but you can lead them to the water that is the living water. Can't make them drink. But your faith in your home, in your marriage, in your parenting, it matters. Your faith in the church matters. We can't be a generation. We can't raise up a generation where faith doesn't matter. Now, listen, the Israelites, to be clear, remember, they had all the knowledge in the world about God, and knowledge we know saves no one. The demons, remember in James, the demons had knowledge about God and Christ, and they are still demons. But faith in Jesus is everything. Young people, you in a lot of ways, you ride your parents' coattail. You get up in the morning, and the food is in the fridge, and you had nothing to do with that. <laughs> you need to be somewhere, mom or dad drive you there. In a lot of ways, you, 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 you ride the coattails of your parents. It's a blessing to grow up in the church and to be taught these things and to see these things lived out. But growing up Christian can also be dangerous. You can't presume upon your parents' faith. Parents, you can't allow your kids to presume upon your faith. Just because your children are raised in the church doesn't mean they belong to the church, if you know what I mean. Our faith matters, and without it, you have nothing. I have nothing. Nothing. Now, now, don't misunderstand me. That's not to say that our hope is in our faith. Our hope is in the object of our faith, 
Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen and descended and now interceding. He alone saves, but, but faith is by God's design. Faith is his ordained con- conduit, if you will, by which you receive the gospel life, by which you receive gospel blessings and promises. It's why Paul says in the Bible, have faith. Ask for wisdom, but if you don't have faith, God's not going to give it to you. Faith matters. Anything that is not a faith, Romans 14, is sin. So our faith, it matters. And listen, our faith can grow weak, right? Maybe that's you right now. I'm doing some work around the house, and I've got one of those cordless drills. And you know, when you get that thing out, and you're all jazzed and ready to go, and you're all fired up to get the work done, you get that drill out, are you kidding me? Now I've got to wait a couple hours to charge this thing up. That's us. We're like a cordless drill. Our faith needs to be, needs to be, needs to continually be uh, supported and, and encouraged and strengthened. We grow weak. The world around us has a real impact. We allow ourselves to, to be exposed to all manner of things that just sometimes subtly, sometimes it's like you're just nibbling at the buffet, sometimes it's you're rolling up to the prime rib and just standing there and throwing it in your mouth. But the world has an impact on us. Our faith matters. A life loyal to God must be cultivated by feasting on his word. We have to cultivate gospel-centered minds. We must make the church's life a non-negotiable part of our lives. Even in the church, that's just being lost. The church is just one more segment of my life. We need to have people who know us and who are willing to humbly and boldly speak to us where there may be concerns We need a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit every day. Empowerment. We need to know Jesus and we need to keep knowing him more and more and more. The knowing never comes to an end. And if you're wondering, it won't come to an end in heaven. (laughs) Just every moment we we, we are increasingly growing in, in our affections for and our knowledge of Jesus as our Lord and Savior, lest we forget and grow indifferent in every way. And that's what happened in Israel. They knew. They just didn't know. Do you know? But not really. Do you know Jesus? But you find yourself slipping away? He's not as precious to you? Maybe maybe the desire to grow be in the Word, read good gospel-centered books, open yourself up to Christ-centered fellowship. Maybe those things are becoming less and less in your life. That's a warning sign. Pay attention to Israel. Remember why Israel is here. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthians. All those Old Testament stories, they're for your instruction. (laughs) Learn from them. (laughs) God has preserved them for your own faith 
and his glory. Our faith matters every day. Second, our sin is serious. The, the author paints this picture, and then you'll notice in verse 11, he, he, he goes out of his way to show us the seriousness of Israel's sin. He ends verse 10 by reminding us, yeah, that there's an entire generation. They were not walking with God. They just did not care. And then he unpacks it. He goes out of his way to show us the seriousness of their sin. First in verse 11, notice what he says. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, he could have just left it there. We get that, right? But he doesn't. He actually, and you might have caught this as we read it, he actually unpacks what he means by evil. Notice in verse 11. This is verse 11 through 13. Is kind of, let me tell you what I mean when I say they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 11, they served. There's, there's, there's six verbs here to describe their sin. They served the Baals. Verse 12, they abandoned the Lord. They went after other gods. We don't drift into ungodliness. We pursue it. They provoked or they bowed down to the other gods. They provoked the Lord to anger. That's all in verse 12. And then in verse 13, he repeats, they abandoned a second time the Lord. And then a second time, they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. The, 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 the author could have simply said, listen, they didn't, know, they didn't know God. They didn't know God. They just gave themselves to evil. But he doesn't. And these kind of details we have to pay attention to. Samuel is hammering away at something that he wants us to get. In a word, idolatry. That's, th those verbs are all about idolatry. Do you remember what it said last week in verse 2? Chapter 2, verse 2. He says, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. Why? Because if you don't, you're going to end up serving their gods. If you don't, you're going to abandon me. Peer pressure is powerful. <laughs> Your heart is weak. You need to shatter their altars and dispel their pagan religion from your midst. But like we saw in verse 2 and like we're seeing in our passage this morning, they, they did covenant with the Canaanites. They compromised their faith. They, they did refuse to break down and destroy the altars of worship. They, they didn't combat the culture around them. Instead of evangelizing the Canaanites, they assimilated to the Canaanites. Instead of being an influence and having a godly impact, they were influenced. Their loyalty was horizontal, not vertical. In a nutshell, by the time we get here in the story of Judges, Israel doesn't look like God's people they look like Canaanites. We might say it this way. That person's life doesn't really look like a Christian's life. It looks like the world's life. 
Here's a good loyalty test. Simple. Don't ask yourself this, by the way, because if you're like me, I'm very charitable with myself. Ask somebody else. Ask someone who knows you. Ask someone who's close to you. A spouse, a parent, a good friend, somebody in your community group. Does my life look more like the world or God's kingdom? We heard it this morning in pre-service prayer. We are of this. We are in this world, but we are not of this world. This is not our home. And we were not created for this world. And we are not being renovated for this world. We are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, preparing us for an entire another world where our citizenship is eternal and perfect. Heaven. But that's a good question for us. To talk about. That's a good question for us to, to humbly offer somebody to speak into about our own lives. So I want to take a moment because I think it's easy to read about Israel's evil and their idolatry and, and not understand how bad it was. And parents, warning, this will be a little bit graphic. This will be a little bit graphic. Like I said at the beginning of the series, we're going to have Sundays where you go, oh, we got to talk to the kids. <laughs> There's something in this idolatry that is critical to understand the depths of Israel's spiritual collapse after Joshua. You know this, but life in the promised land was very agrarian, okay? It was very agrarian. And so this shaped the Canaanites' religion. And remember, in, these, in our text today, Israel is no longer serving Yahweh. They are fully engulfed in the Canaanites' paganism. That Their religion is the same as that of the Canaanites. So it was very earthy. It, it, it was, it, 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 they, their religion was about economic survival in the sense that the harvest was everything. One's well-being depended upon the harvest, whether it was your crops or your animals, or your family. And this meant that fertility, the idea of fertility meant everything to you. And so really, your religion, the Canaanites' religion, was all about coercing the gods of fertility. The Baals and the Ashtaroth. That they were gods of rain. They were gods of the storm. They were gods of fertility above all things. And this was done, coercing the gods was to, to give you favor with your crops and, and with your family and with your, with your animals, which all just meant a good life. That that was done in numerous ways, including child sacrifice, including self-mutilation. And one of the most powerful ways that you would coerce Baal and Ashtaroth was through sacred sex. They were the gods, Baal, they were the gods of fertility. And so here's what would happen as a Canaanite. Now, as an Israelite, okay, 
You want favor from the gods so you can feed your family. You want favor from the gods so that, so that your wife can have children and your name will live on, which was everything, and somebody can take over the farm. What do you do? You go to the temple and you have sex with a sacred prostitute, temple prostitutes. That's what they were there for. They were there for you. And their sex was the magic that moved Baal and Ashtaroth to rain down fertility. One, one commentator said the, the sexual act in the temple would move Baal and Ashtaroth to have their own foray. And in that activity, fertility was rained down on you. This is what Israel, <laughs> this is what Israel has gotten themselves into. In fact, look over to Psalm 106 for a moment. I want you to see something. Psalm 106. And let, let's start in verse 34. Go home and read this, the whole thing this week. Um, the psalm begins with everything God did for them. Egypt, Red Sea. Verse 34, talking about Israel. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them. Remember what we talked about last week? But they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons. This is Israel. Their sons and daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Israel abandoned God for that. In the very temples that they refused against God's command to destroy. One commentator invites us to put ourselves in Israel's shoes for for, for, this, for the idea of the temptation. He says, if we turn on our imagination lights, we can readily understand how Israelites would be lured toward Baal worship by the Canaanites they had allowed to remain in the land. One can almost hear a helpful Canaanite trying to talk a little religion and sense to his Israelite neighbor. Oh yeah, of course, having Yahweh who brings you out of Egypt, who, who makes Pharaoh cry uncle, who divides the Jordan, all that is amazing. All that is fine. And I've got nothing against this Yahweh, mind you. But here in Canaan, it's not always a big bang that matters, but getting into the rhythms of nature. I mean trying to manage the day-to-day -day situation with crops and flocks and so forth. Naturally, I might be able to help you know some of our secrets. Maybe you and your son would like to come with me to the high place for our midweek service. Yeah, 
putting food on the table is real. And this is where Israel found themselves. Too many of them said, I think I'll do that. What time is that service? That's where Israel is. Now listen, we, we may not be joining ourselves to sacred prostitutes, but as John Calvin famously put it, our hearts, our hearts are idol factories. And you know what an idol is, but just let me remind you. An idol is whatever, become, whatever you allow to become more significant in your life than God. I need it for happiness. I need it for status. I need it for sanity. I need it because of what it does for me. And whatever it is, even if it is something good, family, leisure, marriage, children, convenience, a godly reputation, serving in a particular ministry or leading in the church in a particular way. Whatever it is, even if it is good, if you are willing to sin to get it, or you sin because you don't get it, you, my brothers or sisters, are caught in idolatry. That's idolatry. Idolatry is loyalty to self and this world, not God. And idolatry is sin. The sin of idolatry is with us every day. Brian Trask right over in the corner always jokes around, man, I used to idolatrize people's pools. I always wanted a pool. Never had a pool. I remember sharing with Brian and my brother, it's a real struggle for me. I I found myself getting jealous and envious. How shallow is that? (laughs) You've got a pool? God, why can't I have a pool? And it was a battle. It would just insert itself in the Oh, you got a pool? Oh, that new house you bought? Really? Suddenly all my joy for Brian zapped. (laughs) I had an idolatrous attitude toward a particular leisure toward a particular materialistic item. The Lord helped me with that. I'm grateful for that. But idolatry is with us every day, and it's sin. And sin is serious. Just look at Israel. Sin separates us from God. Sin is why God took on flesh. Sin is what nailed Jesus to the cross. Like Israel, sin hinders our relationship with God. Even though we are saved by grace and he will never abandon us, our sin hinders our relationship with God. Our sin positions us to not receive from God all that he has and wants for us to receive from him. Our sin affects our prayers. 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. And if you don't, that's sin, and I will not respond to your prayers. 
That's what he says. Husbands, remember that. To not live with your wife in another way, God says, I will hinder your prayers if you treat your wife in a way that is not patient and gentle and understanding and love, loving. So sin is serious. Now listen, be assured that the penalty of sin, praise God, was paid at the cross by Jesus himself, God himself in the flesh. Be assured that the power of your sin was defeated in the resurrection. Oh, death, where is your sting? But be equally assured that sin is still present and powerfully deceptive. And though we are not slaves to it, we don't have to be. We might enslave ourselves, but we do not have to be enslaved to our sin. If we ignore it, like Israel, our hearts will just increasingly harden and we will spiritually decline. The author of Hebrews actually, that's what he said to the, to the, to the saints in, uh, in his area. That they, were, they were getting ready to abandon such a great salvation. They were beginning to turn to something other than God for their peace, for their hopefulness, even if it was back to the roots of Judaism. And this is what he says. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in, be in any of you an, un, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day. Why? Because so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Israel has become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Oh, you know, it's going to be too hard to drive the Canaanites out of the lowlands, remember, they have those iron chariots. Compromise. I know God told us to drive them out of the land, but militarily speaking, that's not the wisest thing right now. So let's leave them. Oh, we're going to negotiate with the man and his family. If you help us, we'll help you who then goes and builds a city right next door with all his pagan worshipers. Listen, if you right now this morning are convicted of any idolatry, any sin right now, here's what you do with it. Conviction, not condemnation. The difference, condemnation turns inward and says, woe is me, if I could only do better next time, God will love me. But that will never happen. And so you get crushed. Condemnation crushes. Conviction looks upward, not inward. It looks upward and says, Oh Lord, what a wretched sinner that I am. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Forgive me for once again replacing you with something else in my life. Empower me next time to say yes to your righteousness and no to myself, to die to myself in that moment. That's conviction. And so if you're right now, the Lord, the Spirit is at work. He's putting his finger on something. That's not me singling you out publicly. That's the Holy Spirit at work in you. I don't have that much power. Conviction, not condemnation. Repent. 
and then flee from that. Have gratitude for what God has provided for you in the cross. I know it seems simple. It, it takes humility. It takes holy resolve. But take heart. The Spirit of God is with you. And take heart. God is merciful. Notice verse 14. Verse 14. After unpacking all those verbs to show us to the depths of Israel's hardness of heart and sinfulness. Verse 14 says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible Distress. This, this, this is our final point. In his holy anger, those verses say, God took away the prosperity. He took away the security Israel hoped they would gain through serving those pagan gods. But instead, their relationship was hindered with God. He said, I will no longer go out with you. I will no longer hand the enemies into your hands. I will go out and plan for harm against you. I will go out and I will hand you over to the enemies. Not suddenly, life in the promised land that was supposed to be a life of fruitfulness and peace and worship was now a living hell for Israel. Note the end of verse 15. They lived in terrible distress. Now, you might say, wow, this is, this is an overreaction. I thought God was the God of love. He is. He is the God of love. I thought God was a covenant-keeping God. He is. He is a covenant-keeping God. But look at verse 15. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, as the Lord had sworn to them. In other words, this is part of God's covenant. This is part of God's covenant. This is what he promised. In the New Testament... It says it this way, Christian, I will oppose you if you're proud. I will pour out my grace if you're humble. Now, when we talk about God's anger here, two things. God's anger, one, is an expression of his faithfulness. That's what we see in verse 15. He was angry, but that anger was an expression of his faithfulness. It's a, as one commentator called it, it's a faithful anger. Israel was not innocent. God is doing exactly what he promised to do so many times in the, in the past. So this is a faithful anger. For God not to do what he said he would do in these verses is for him not to be faithful. As hard as that is to believe. But his anger is also seen as an expression not only of his faithfulness, but of his holy love. Scripture presents the covenant relationship as a marriage, right? Even Jesus and the church. The church is what? The church is the bride of Christ. And in the Old Testament, Israel's unfaithfulness is repeatedly described as a spiritual adultery. So just think about a marriage for a moment, right? If a spouse is unfaithful to another spouse, that spouse who's been scorned is probably going to be angry. They're going to be hurt, They'll probably be jealous. 
And while jealousy and anger most of the time are sure expressions of sin, there is a such thing as righteous anger. There is a such thing as a jealousy that is an expression of your love for that person. God is a jealous God. And so if a spouse is angry when they find out that their partner has has not been faithful, that it probably expresses their love for that person. If they weren't upset, oh yeah, well, you know, you win a few, you lose a few. Well, I think most people would go, do, do you love her? Do you, do, you, do, you, do you genuinely love him? You realize what he's done. Del Ralph Davis says, love divine is not soft laxity, but blazing intolerance and absolute claim. Such is the God of Israel, whose jealous love makes him faithful in his anger towards you. Who ever heard of love and fidelity like that? We were talking in the office this morning for the service, and somebody mentioned the Chronicles of Narnia. It's like, remember Mr. and Mrs. Beaver? Can't forget the, don't remember the kid he's talking to, but they want to know who the king is. Who's the king? Who's Aslan? Oh, he's the king. Is he safe? No, he's not safe. But he's good. That's Hebrews 12. He disciplines the ones he loves. Israel has committed spiritual adultery. But you know what? Notice, notice, the, notice the progress here. Verse 17. Israel didn't listen to the judges, who, by the way, were God's expression of mercy and grace toward them. Instead, they continued to whore after the Canaanites and their gods. And then look at verse 19. Every time a judge died, their corruption only got worse. So in verse, in, in, in verse 20 through 3, 4, we're not going to read it. You can go on your own time. God finally says, okay, I'm done. I'm not going to drive out the nations. I'm going to leave them. They will war against you, and this will be a way to test you. Not tempt you. God does not tempt, but he does test. I will test you to see if you, if you, if you will come back to me. It's a divine uh, 220 verses 3, 4 is a divine way of God saying, you know what? You made your bed. I'm going to let you lie in it for a while. And maybe you'll see. Maybe your eyes will be open. But notice how, our, and notice how the passage ends in, in chapter 3, verse 6. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served God. In other words, not good. But listen, in the darkness and despair of Israel's apostasy in these verses we find what one commentator calls the abyss of mercy, and it's in verse 16. Look at verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. People idolatrous. People idolatrous. Idolatry just kept getting worse. God says, okay, it's going to get really hard for you guys then. But in the midst of that, 
He sends judges. He gave them over to plunderers. Yes, verse 14. His hand was against them for their harm. Yes, verse 15. But then out of nowhere, verse 16, the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. It's astonishing. Don't read over verse 16 because verse 16 helps you move forward for the rest of the book. It helps you move forward for the rest of the Old Testament. It makes, helps you understand what was happening in the Gospels. It helps you understand how we as sinners save sinners, yet still God is gracious and merciful and how sometimes that mercy and love and discipline can be very difficult. But the one thing that never changes is God is for his people. (laughs) Even Israel, he was for them. Disciplining them, yes. Abandoning them, no. Because he's faithful. He's a covenant-keeping God. And despite Israel's utter failures, he was merciful. God, who rightly cast down Israel, lifts them up through the judges. So what we're going to see through individual stories and one big story, that is the entire book of Judges, This is how the book of Judges, that is so dark and perverted and violent, it is, I almost named the title, The Gospel According to Judges. Because that's what Judges does. It points us to the one who who no earthly judge could ever do what he did. When we were rightly dead in our sin, Ephesians 2, it was God, rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. When we stood rightly condemned for our ordinary or for our idolatry before the heavenly throne of God, he became flesh. He came to us. He didn't tell us to come to him. And he made us right with Jesus. When we were hopelessly unfaithful, God sent Jesus, our great high priest, Hebrew 4, to stand in our stead and save us, giving us a place at the eternal throne. Even now, when we abandon God for the shiny things of this world, he disciplines us, but he never leaves us. He never abandons us. He is always with us, as Jesus said to the disciples, Lo, I am with you until the end. That's not a statement about me. Because my adultery will kick in the moment I step down from this pulpit. It's a statement about him. He is a merciful God. That's mercy. That's grace. That's divine love. And that mercy is new every day for all who are in Christ Jesus. And church, there is no greater reason to smile than that reason right there. God does not leave you to the vices of the world. His son has defeated them. He gives you sustaining grace. He pours out his mercy on you every day so that when you do sin, you don't have to huddle up in a corner or hide behind a bush like Adam and Eve. You come to him with open hands and say, Lord, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner in need of your grace. Fill me freshly with your spirit and help me to love you with my life in every way, more and more. Guard my heart from becoming so hard 
that I no longer even care about who you are. Do this work in me. Jesus, you were once God. Jesus, you were once my judge, but now you're my savior. We go from judges to a savior. This is the story of judges. This is our story as Christians. Our sin is great every day, but God's mercy is more every day. I'm going to ask the band to come up. Let's close with a song. And just building off last week, I did have a sense. There was a prophetic word last week about there may be people here who feel like they just, they're, they're beyond God's mercy. I don't know if that was you, if it was, or if you feel like a new today. I think that word applies today as well. If that's you this morning, you, you, you came here wondering, Lord, how could your mercy be great enough for my sin? If my pastor only knew, if, if my friends sitting behind me only knew what I did this weekend, what my thoughts were like, how I have uh, allowed my anger to be taken out on my wife or my kids, whatever it might be. God has you here this morning. And he says, come, come to me. You can approach my throne because there's a great high priest, one who who I have judged your sin already at Calvary. And so you can come to me. Come to me in faith. Come to me acknowledging and owning your sin. But come expecting my mercy and my grace. It will fit the occasion. It will be exactly what you need. Don't run from me. You're not too far away for me. I may discipline you. I may be disciplining you. But I love you. That's why I discipline you. And my mercy is more. Your sin is great. But my mercy is greater. So let's stand. If that's you, sing this song. Make your praise to God. Humble your hearts for all of us, really, because we all need God's mercy. Even if you're feeling really good about yourself today, you probably need God's mercy. (laughs) Let's sing.